When the Narnia movies were first released, I remember that my girls were very young, and I took them to the theater to see the first in the series. And while I love the story and the theology of the Narnia stories, I remember as I left the theater wondering if I had done the right thing, because it was quite scary. You see, Aslan, who is the lion in the Narnia stories, and the God figure, well, he was quite different from Alex, the lion of the Madagascar series. Alex, the lion, liked to sing and dance and perform in the zoo. But Aslan, the lion, the God figure, he was big and intimidating. He had teeth and claws, and he used his power at times to destroy And I wasn't so comfortable with that as a mother. And yet I noticed this morning that that Aslan the lion in the Narnia series is not too dissimilar from our Bible story for today. A story, the Passover, that is retold each year among the faithful during the Seder, making certain that the children hear this story. You know, if it were up to me, I think I would have a a separate table for the children so that they wouldn't have to ask about these details, what makes this night different from any other night. And they wouldn't have to hear the gory details of take a lamb into your house as a pet and after a couple of weeks slaughter that lamb and put its blood on the doorpost. And then eat that lamb, all of it, the head and the entrails included. And then wait for the presence of the Lord to pass over the houses. And all of the firstborn Egyptians will die. This is not a story for children. And yet, as I considered it this week, I believe that there is a truth in this story that is so significant that it's worth learning early, and it's worth the trauma of the details. And I believe that that truth is about identity, and I want us to consider the truth of identity in this story this morning. One of the very first things that I notice about this passage is that the Passover is saturated with ritual. Not only is the story in the ritual, so that each year as the Passover is is told, as the ritual is celebrated, the story comes out. But there's also ritual in the story. In the very first Passover, there are very specific instructions about how it should be carried out, very ritualistic elements. And so I started thinking this morning about the rituals that I go through every day or during any given week and what those rituals say about my own identity. I notice that every day I brush my teeth at least twice. Every day I shower at least once. I'm a clean person. The last thing that I do every morning as I'm getting dressed is I make sure that my rings are on my fingers. And every afternoon, you will find me in a car, driving from school to school, picking up children. And as they get in the car, I ask, how was your day? 
And what kind of homework load do you have tonight? And then between the hours of 8 and 10, you'll find me wandering the hallways of my home, making sure that my children are in bed. Now, I'm a parent. It's important to me that my children feel welcomed at home, that they are considering what they're learning, and that they're well-rested. And I saw this week, as I considered the rituals that I go through, that I form rituals around the pieces of my identity that are most valuable to me. So that if you were to ask me to introduce myself, well, I would first of all want you to notice that I'm clean and well put together. But I would also tell you that I have a wonderful husband and three lovely children. Those are important pieces of my identity. And around those pieces of identity, I have things that I do regularly. I have rituals. I also considered this week rituals that I do in a group because I had the opportunity to go to a Spurs game. And sure enough, when I was at the Spurs game, I noticed that we all stood up and we all, we all knew to stand up to sing the national anthem. And then the music got louder as the Spurs starters were introduced and then there was a jump ball. And what I I believe about rituals done in community is that they provide security for the group so that we know what's going to happen. We know what's coming next. If you have ever been to a memorial service or a funeral service in this church or in any United Methodist congregation, you know that the service always begins with the words, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am life. And I can't think of a better way to begin a memorial service or a funeral service. Because in those words, there is a sense of identity spoken in community so that there's security. As the tradition has been handed down to us through generations that we speak those words in a memorial service. That this is what we believe about who we are and about who God is. And I also uh, noticed, it it goes without saying, that the very first Passover is done in community. That God says, gather the family. The family unit is the prescribed unit for celebrating the Passover. So that this is not a ritual that is celebrated individually. And it's not a ritual where you just gather an arbitrary group of people together to do it. But these are people who know one another well. And so when we go through a ritual with people that we call family, that we know well, there's an area of depth, an element of depth to that ritual. In the scripture passage, we notice that God says to the people of Israel to go through this ritual, to go through the Passover, and God gives very specific instructions And you and I both believe that there is power in God's instructions. It was the guiding uh, force behind uh, the reformers of the Protestant church when they went from seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic church to two sacraments in the Protestant church. That these are two things, communion and baptism, that Jesus said do. So these are the rituals of our congregation. There's power in those, in those rituals. Most theologians would tell us 
the, the saving power of the past comes forward into the community as we worship together and we walk through those rituals as we retell the story. My brother is preaching this morning in New Heights, and so I uh, was given the opportunity to look at his notes uh, this week, and I noticed that one of the things I believe he will be telling the New Heights community is that when we lose the ritual of our faith, we lose our story. And when we lose the story of our faith, we lose our verbs to describe what God has done, is doing, and will do. And when we lose our verbs to describe God, then we have created for ourselves a God that is detached and irrelevant. It's important that we tell the story. It's important that we tell the story as it was told to us in the right way. One of my very favorite games to watch my dad play with my younger children was not much of a game at all, but a time of telling a story where my dad would pick a fairy tale to tell the children when they were about four or five. And yet he would either leave a very important piece out or he would elaborate and add to the fairy tale. And inevitably, my children would say, wait, 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 Grandpa, that's all wrong. You've got that all wrong. Tell the story the right way. And I believe that that is the role of the faith community the role of the church, to tell the story the right way, to tell the story in a way that represents God's instruction to us so that the generations behind us will pick up the truth of the story. Your experience may be like mine. Maybe you find that there are times when it's just too chaotic to tell a story. I find that most evenings in my home, that when bedtime comes around and it's time to tell a story to the five-year-old, a lot of nights I'm just too exhausted. Things are too chaotic. And yet I notice in this passage that the setting could not be more chaotic. The setting could not be more tumultuous. The Israelites have survived nine plagues. There is a struggle for power among their leaders, and they are told that things will change. In fact, the first verse of chapter 12 says, This will mark for you a new beginning. Times of beginning are always times of chaos, aren't they? And yet, in this passage, in this story, it is so important that the Israelites live out the story, that they go through the specific instructions God gives them, that they go through this ritual. And I believe that that's an important truth for me to remember, that the rituals are so significant that it doesn't depend upon the surroundings. It doesn't just have to be a safe place, but it needs to be every place where I tell the story. I submit to you that the Israelites probably didn't know much about what they were doing the first time that they walked through the ritual of the Passover. The instructions are a bit strange, aren't they? Eat your meal as if you're ready to go. So take your robe and tuck it up into your belt. Put your staff in your hand. Have your shoes on as you eat your meal. Eat the lamb, all of it. Consume all of it, the head and even the internal organs. And then take the blood of that lamb 
and smear it on the doorpost, the door frame of your house. I wonder what they did understand at the time. Maybe they got a part of it, and maybe they continued to learn the rest of it as they retold the story. Blood on the doorpost. What would they have gotten from blood on the doorpost? Well, you and I both understand blood to be a sign of life. And I suspect that the Israelites did as well. And so as they smeared blood of the lamb on the doorpost, maybe what they understood about that was I put my very life into God's hands. This is a time where I get put my life in God's hands. And yet N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar, reminds us that blood of a sacrifice always signifies God's self-giving love. And so maybe as they continued to tell this story, they walked into the deeper truth of understanding that this blood was a sign of God's self-giving love. Verse 13 of chapter 12 tells us that this is a sign for the Israelites. It's not a sign for God. It's not a sign of the, for the Egyptians. The rabbis taught that the blood was smeared on the inside of the doorframe, not on the outside, so that the Egyptians didn't see it. And God, well, God had imparted nine previous plagues, so God did not need for the Israelites and the Egyptians to wear name tags. God did not need this sign. Blood on the doorpost, a sign for the Israelites, a sign of the life that they put into God's hand, a sign of trust that they believe that God will act, that God's self-giving love will act. The blood of the Lamb. You know, it's chapter 1 of John's Gospel, where John the Baptist twice points to Jesus, And says, there is the Lamb of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 says, You have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect. All four of our Gospels and all of the New Testament letters tell us that Jesus is God's own Son. God's one and only firstborn and only son, a lamb without blemish or defect, whose blood is sacrificed for all of us so that no more sacrifices need to be made. It's interesting to me that when Jesus gathers his disciples on the night before he is betrayed, he would want to tell them the most important thing about himself, I believe. He does not give to them a book full of the highlights of his best teaching. He does not preach for them a wonderful sermon. But instead, he celebrates with them The Passover, providing for them, I believe, a place of security and giving them 
an identity that's worth learning and imparting unto them power and love that's worth holding on to.